I want to tell you guys about um, Jonah, but before I do that, I have to tell you about the king and his son. Um, there was a king, and, and a long time ago, this king loved being king. He loved what he did. He loved his subjects. He loved his kingly duties and tasks, and he loved his kingly meetings, and he loved his family, but most importantly, he loved his son, um, and he loved playing with his son in the garden. One day, the son um, wandered through the garden, and you see the garden connected to the rest of the forest that was throughout the kingdom. And so the king comes out to play with his son, and his son's not there. And his son has wandered into the forest. And, and while he's in the forest, the son has tripped over some roots and fallen in some dirt and some mud and ripped up his royal robes and gotten dirt on his face and in his hair. And he's bleeding on, on this side of his arm. And so he eventually wanders out of the woods and into the lower parts of the city where the woods connects. Okay, you follow? And, and he He's very little, and he's the son of the king. And so he goes to all these people, and he, you know, he tugs on their shirt tails and says, excuse me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a son of the king, and I need to go home. And everybody looks at him and says, you know, sure you are. Of course you are. And they, and, they keep, and they keep walking, and they keep leaving. And eventually he begins to get aggravating to people. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the king. I'm the king's son. Please help me get home. And they look at him, and they say, no, you're not. No, you're not. Meanwhile, back at the palace, it's panic time, and the king is freaking out and getting all of his people together, and, they, and he tells everyone to go and look for his son. And if you've ever lost a child, even for a minute, you know, you know kind of the panic that, that, he was, that he was feeling in the queen. And so they, they, they put up posters, and, and they go out, and they, and they try to get all of these people to go find him, and, and they can't. And days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and... Throughout this time, this, this kid who, you know, when you're little and people tell you something over and over again, you start to believe it. And eventually he begins to believe that he is not a son of the king. And he begins to hang out with the wrong people. And he begins to do bad things with the wrong people. Murder and rape and steal and lie and all these other things. And this goes on for months and years and eventually over time he grows to hate this king who tries so hard to stop him from doing what he wants to do and he would ride on his horse by the palace and spit on it and continue on and and eventually the king looks around and sees a wanted poster and realizes after all these years that the greatest criminal in the kingdom is his son and so the king gets everybody, and now that the king is in on it, the police will really pay attention, and they go, and they arrest the man, and they put him on trial for what he's done, and the judge says, I, I cannot look the other way from what you've done. You, you are to die for, for what you've done. And so he sentences him to death. And so the night before his death, the son is sitting in his jail cell, and the king, and the son doesn't realize, okay? And the king goes to the son's jail cell and, and says, I loved you with a great love, but I cannot look the other way from this. I cannot ignore what you've done. There has to be punishment for what you've done. So I'm going to let you go. I love you. And the king leaves and closes the cell door and, and leaves. And, the, and the, the young man gets up and goes up to his jail cell and pushes it and the door 
swings open. The king has left it unlocked. And the, and the, and the, the son says, that stupid old man. He thinks that I, what does he think, that I'm going to worship him now? That I will listen to him as, as king now? And so he takes his sword and he takes his, his coat from, from, the, from the storage place and he, and he leaves. It wasn't until three weeks later that he heard what happened, that the king had died in his place so that the demands of the law would be met. God's love for his people, God's love for you, is a lot like that. And, and, and so much more. And I want to tell you about that, but I'm worried because I don't know how to do this, talk about this well enough. But I'm going to try. Okay? Cool? But before I try, I have to give you a little bit of, uh, I guess we'll call it a history lesson. Okay? So here we go. First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuter- There's not going to be a quiz, so everybody chill. First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, what does that mean? In the United States, the Pentagon, or a Pentagon, has five sides. Pentagon, five sides. Pentateuch, five books. Okay? With me so far? We cool? All, five books of the, all of the first five books of the Bible, there's a better way to say that, they're all written by the same guy. Moses, okay? Moses is famous because of what he does in the second book of the Bible called Exodus. And in Exodus, God uses Moses to free the Israelites out of Egypt, okay? We're tracking so far? Some of you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. God uses Moses to free the Israelites from Egypt in the Exodus, or in Exodus, okay? Cool. Um, now, here's something important that we have to remember about that, about the Israelites being set free. Israel was not the only country in slavery at the time, okay? They're just the only one that we ever really talk about. The Old Testament is full of slavery. In, in fact, in Genesis, before Exodus, okay, Genesis, Exodus, in Genesis, before Exodus, Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery, Okay, so slavery was already a thing. This was not, it wasn't as if everybody else in the world was free and happy and then Israel was enslaved by Egypt. They weren't the only people. Okay? And also later in the, in the Old Testament, when, when King David and King Saul and King Solomon and all these different people, whenever a kingdom would take over another kingdom, one of the things they took as property were the slaves. Okay? So slavery is all throughout the Old Testament. Okay? But but only one group of people enslaved were freed by God's great power. Just the Israelites, okay? But why? Why just the Israelites? Well, as it always does, the Bible tells us why. If you have a Bible, turn to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or just use your table of contents. Either one is fine. Um, so again, so we're trying to figure out why, why is it that, that God saved Israel? Why just Israel? All right, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 says this. And this is Moses talking to Israel, okay? For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So that's where we are, So, but why? 
Verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the people. So just quick pause. It's not because there's more of you. It's not because you're mighty or because you do good things. Keep, keep going. For you were the fewest of all people. So you're the smallest of people. You're not worth, you know, you're not, you haven't earned anything. Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you, And kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Moses is saying, the reason God has taken you, Israel, out of Egypt is twofold. One, because he loves you. Period. You've done nothing to earn this. You've done nothing to get his attention. He he has freed you from this because he loves you. And two, because he keeps his promises. And in the beginning, God, in Genesis, God promises Abraham, the first Israelite, that he would make him into a great nation, and God keeps his promises. So those are the two reasons. Because he loves Israel, and because he keeps his promises. Now, bring, turn the page. Um, I think I just dated myself a little bit with that. Okay, but how do we know? How do we know that God loves Israel? Like he says it right there, which is evidence enough, but what's, a, what's another reason? How do we know that God loves Israel? And, and this is where it gets cool. Because he wrote them a love letter, and it's called Genesis. Okay, Now think about it like this. And here, here's the thing that we, that we don't really talk about with Genesis a lot, because we really only use Genesis as, you believe in evolution, well, look at Genesis. How's, and, and Genesis was not written with evolution in mind. Like Nobody was thinking of evolution as a thing when Genesis was written. Okay, Does that make sense? Are we, are we on the same? No one was really thinking about evolution when Genesis was written, so it doesn't make sense to use Genesis that way. Genesis was written by Moses, Okay, Genesis was written by Moses, but when? When was Genesis written? Well, it probably wasn't written during the time of Exodus, like when God was freeing the, the Israelites from Egypt, because Moses kind of had enough on his plate. Okay, So when was Genesis written? Let me try to paint this for you. Um, okay, picture that you are an Israelite. Okay, You're an Israelite. Your mama was a slave. Your dad was a slave. Your granddad was a slave. You're a slave. One day your kid will be a slave. Okay? And then, and then out of nowhere, Moses comes onto the scene. And, he, and, he, and remember, you have, you, you're just, you have no idea. And Moses comes to you. And he says, the God that you have been praying to this whole time has heard your prayer. And he's been with you. And he's been watching you. This whole time. And now he's going to set you free. And when you're free, you're going to go out into the desert and to worship him. And celebrate him freeing you. Okay? And and you know, you hear Moses say this and maybe, maybe not. And over the next few months or years, the Bible's not totally clear here, but over the next few months or years, things begin to happen to Egypt. Hail the size of chariots begins to fall from the sky and knock down houses and kill animals and crops and all these different things. Um, The Nile River turns to blood. Um, Egypt's crops are destroyed. 
and, and the whole nation economically begins to crumble. But, and then disease comes in and racks all of Egypt. But you and your family and your people are mysteriously kept safe from all of this. Okay? And then one of the last plagues, these are called the plagues, by the way. They're in Exodus. And, and, and one of the last plagues is the plague of darkness. And what it was is it was this pitch black you can see nothing, and all you can do is, is yell out for help, but no one else can see, and no one else can go. Yet, you and your people can see. You can see fine. And you see this whole nation being brought to its knees. All the while, just kind of understanding that God is, free and is freeing you, and, and Pharaoh lets you go. And so you get to the Red Sea and you freak out and, and this God that Moses keeps speaking of splits the sea open and you walk through the Red Sea and the water topples in on Pharaoh and all of his armies and Egypt is destroyed and now you're free. And Moses comes to you and he says, the God who, remember, it doesn't matter. Moses comes to you and he says, remember, the God who, is, who has told me of the God that you've been praying to, he has freed you just like he said he would, and now it's time for you to worship him in the desert. And, and then you go and you ruin it, and, and I ruin it. You, you go to Egypt, you, you, you're in the desert, and, and it's really hot in the desert, and God provides you with food and water, but it's the same food and water every day. This all happens in Exodus, by the way. And, and, and he provides you with water and food, but it's the same water and food every day. And you begin to miss all the different meals that you could cook in Egypt when you were a slave. And you begin to miss things about Egypt, and then eventually you begin to miss Egypt. The place where you were a slave. And you begin to grow bitter towards God and angry towards God. And so in your bitterness and in your anger, you begin to worship other things. You begin to worship other gods. And you begin to get angry at God for what he's done to you as an Israelite. And God sees this and, and he's merciful and patient and Moses continues to try to play the middleman to, to stop God's wrath and stop God's anger and God allows in patience and you continue and continue and continue to miss Egypt and to want nothing more to do with God and eventually he cannot stay it anymore and he punishes you. And here's your punishment. This promised land that he was taking you to, you don't get to go. Only your kids get to go. And you have to, you are sentenced to walk the desert and wander the desert for 40 years doing nothing until you all die out. And then God will raise up a new leader named Joshua and take you into the, take your children into the promised land. And so now you've been sentenced to this and you wander in the desert and you say, well, God must not love me now. Look at how badly I have blown this. Look at all the things that I have done. God must not love me now because he's punished me for this. And God says, oh, I still do. I still love you. Let me show you. Let me show you, and here's where we pull it all in. 
let me show you how I've loved you from the beginning. And so, while they're wandering in the desert for 40 years with nothing to do, now is the time God gives Moses a letter to write to his people about how he's loved them from the beginning. And the letter, the letter starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you see, Genesis is Genesis was written by Moses to God's people to show them how they got there. You gotta see that. Genesis was written by Moses to God's people to show them how they got there. If you go back and read Genesis, it doesn't talk about the history. Remember, it's, I mean, it's the whole world, right? God creates the world. But it's not about the history of the world. It's not about the history of Egypt. Egypt was there. It's not about the Mesopotamians, who some of you know and some of you don't. It's not important. It's not about the ancient tribes. It's not about America, shockingly enough. It's not about any of these other countries. It's about Israel. Genesis is about Israel. It's about Israel, and it starts with, it's a book of, okay, here we go. It's a book about Israel, and it starts with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it was written to Israel, which means that when God created the heavens and the earth, what group of people was he thinking of? Israel. God created the heavens and the earth for his people. Now, what does that have to do with you? What if I told you that he had you in mind too, and then I can prove it? And so I will. Look at (laughs) Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Ephesians is in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, verse 3. So you got... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, or your table of contents, because that was probably too fast. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Now remember, I'm trying to show you that when God made the world, he had you in mind. Okay? Here we go. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here we go. Just as he chose us, there it is, in him before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world. If you're going to build a building, you have to have foundation. So this has to do with creating something. So here we go. I've said it like 13 times already. When did God create the heavens and the earth? In the the beginning. Okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if he created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and he thought of you before he created the heavens and the earth, that means he thought of you before before the beginning. Before the beginning, God has you in his mind. Before the earth, God has you in mind. One more place that I'm going to show you, and it's in a really random book in the Bible, unless you're a pastor, and it's called Titus. So flip over a few pages towards the end of the book, towards the end of the Bible, and go to Titus. Titus is kind of hard to find, so I'm going to recommend it for my table of contents, people. Titus is after 2 Timothy. 
if that helps narrow it down. And I would say it's before Philemon, but Philemon's even harder to find than Titus, so that's not going to help any of you. Um, Titus chapter 1, verse 2. I'll give you guys a second to get there. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. And again, God has his people in mind before the world exists. You, specifically. And remember, this is the New Testament, so it's no longer just about Israel. This is about you. All right, here we go. Titus 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Some versions say, my version says, in ages long ago. Some versions say, um, before the ages began. Some versions say, before the world or before time. It literally means, before eternity passed. So before, so before eternity even, I don't even know how to explain that to you, but before eternity even began, God thought of you. Do not miss this. Now, let's bring it together, and then, we'll, and then I'll show you what this has to do with Jonah. Okay, so if he thought of you before the world started, then when he made the world, who was he trying to, to get to? You. You live here. You need a place to live and to breathe and to stay on the earth and to grow. He made the world, God made the world so that he could get to his people. That is the point of creation. We were, we were sitting in middle school boys small group on Sunday night like three and a half weeks ago. And, uh, and we were talking about how God doesn't need friends. He's God. And he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you got three perfect people hanging out all the time. They don't need anybody. And so we asked and we were like, why do you guys think God made the world then? Because he's not lonely. And, they, and one of the boys said, one of the boys said, because he wants worshipers. Yeah. He had you in mind when he made the world so that he could then get to you. The world and everything in it was made for you so that you, so that he could get to you. You are the point of the world. You are the purpose of this place. Um, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you die, whether it be tomorrow or 50 years from now, you will be before God and you're going to have several questions. And one of those questions will be, why did you make the world? I don't know all of the answers, but one of them, I don't know all the things that he's going to say, but one of the things that he will say, God, why did you create the world? Because I was thinking of you. Because I was thinking of you. Not Israel, not the church, you individually. When I made the world, I had you in mind. The book of Jonah is one of the most talked about books in the Bible because it's very easy to understand, sort of. And it's got the fish, and the fish is cool. But the book of Jonah is not about Jonah, okay? The book of Jonah is about God's love for his people, the people of a city called Nineveh, people who were not from Israel, people who were what's called Gentile, people like you. 
The book of Jonah is about God's love for his people. So we're going to go through Jonah pretty quick here. And I want you to keep that in mind. Don't focus so much on Jonah here. Read it from the lens of God is going after his people, okay? So let's go to Jonah 1, and let's take a look and see what it's got. All right, Jonah is after Obadiah, which I'm sure will help so many of you. Um, Jonah is after Obadiah and before Micah. So, I mean, I don't know how else I can spell it out for you guys, seriously. Um, Okay, here we go. Jonah 1, so let's just start at the beginning. Um, Here we go. Let's read Jonah 1, 1 through 3. And I'm supposed to talk about Jonah chapter 3, and we will get there in just a second. But i got to set the scene and paint the picture. Um, Jonah 1, chapter 1, (laughs) verse 1. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, got onto the boat, and fled from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so God comes, and, and Bob's already painted this for you, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but, but this is important to keep up here. We always think that, that Jonah ran from God because he's afraid. And, or because he, he's nervous. And, and the moral is, don't, don't be nervous. Jonah was nervous, don't worry. That's not the main reason Jonah left. Jonah left because he hated the people of Nineveh. Jonah was very much what you could call a racist. He hated these people. Flip over or scroll down, you young ones, to Jonah chapter 4. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. So this is after chapter 3, and everybody's repented, and and we'll talk about that. But Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 tells us why Jonah did not want to go. Jonah 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah. So Jonah's angry that these people have repented and and come to know Jesus. It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. It's okay to pray to the Lord if you're angry. There it is. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to stop this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. So in order to stop this, I fled. What is this? Well, what did he just see? Everybody comes to know Jesus, and, 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 well, to know God, and, and God saves them. Jonah did not want this to happen. Jonah hates these people, and he knows that God is loving and caring, and he knows he's going to save them, and Jonah wants no part of it. Jonah hates these people. So flip back over to Jonah 1. What does Jonah do? He goes and gets on a boat. Now remember, this isn't about Jonah. This is about God's love for his people. Now if God didn't care about Nineveh, what, and Jonah gets on the boat to go away from Nineveh, what God could have just let him leave. He could have just let him, let him sail away on calm seas. But God loves the people of Nineveh. And he will do anything to get to his people. So he literally changes the weather. This is incredible. He changes the weather to get to his people. Look at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God and threw cargo, which was in the ship, to lighten it for them. So, so God throws a great storm on to the sea. And it was so great. Did, did you catch it? Who who became afraid? 
the sailors became afraid. These sailors who spend their lives on the water. When we were going to, when we were going to Kenya, um, we had to fly over the ocean. And it was like my third time flying, and I was not cool, calm, and collected, to say the least. And, and all these stewardesses would be, you know, they'd be serving drinks and serving food, and, and, they, and they had all these, you know, warm towels. And, like, the cart was this high with food. And, the, and like, we'd hit turbulence, and the plane would literally... Go like this, like thousand pound piece of machinery would literally go like this, and 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 the stewardesses were just they were just so chill and they did not care and they were just handing this out and I'm like gripping this the whole time, saying like very deep prayers like Jonah and all these things and and I remember thinking I thought I wonder how bad it really must have to get to where they would start being as scared as I was and it's the same thing here. This is so bad that the people who are used to turbulence are freaking out, okay? And so they become so afraid that they begin to do this. It's called casting lots. Look at verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Casting lots was this way in the Old Testament that you figured out God's will. We like to think of it as gambling, and it's really not. It was allowed in Israel, Casting lots is used in Proverbs 16. Casting lots is used in Joshua when they go into the promised land and they need to decide which tribe gets how much land. They cast lots to do it. Um, And the weirdest one is in Acts chapter 1. Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, is dead. He hangs himself and he is dead. And so the disciples need a 12th disciple. And they get all these eligible candidates and one of the things they do to pick him is casting lots. Now, we don't cast lots anymore because we don't need to know the will of God that way because we have it in the Bible. The Bible is much more important than you think it is. It totally changes how we do this, and, and that's, that's for another time. Um, so they cast lots, and, and of course, the lot lands on Jonah. And this is God again saying, Jonah, you will go to these people. You will go to my people. And I will use anything as big as the weather or as small as a game to get you there. Okay? And let's look at uh, verse 15. So they throw Jonah overboard, right? They throw Jonah overboard. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. So they throw him overboard, and immediately the weather goes back to normal, which means the whole purpose of this storm was to get Jonah out of the boat. The whole purpose of the weather is Jonah. He changes the weather for his people. He does everything for his people. And then you know the rest of this part of the story. Jonah's in the ocean, desperate. A great fish comes, swallows him, keeping him safe from drowning. Jonah has this moment where he realizes what he's doing and he realizes that he needs to serve God. The fish spits him up on dry land which is an experience I want nothing to do with. And so now the Lord comes to Jonah again and says, it's time to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, absolutely. And so Jonah, it's what I've been saying the whole time, God, it's time to go. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh. Now, look at verse, uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, um, and look at verse 3. Let's learn a little bit about Nineveh here. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. What does that mean? It means one of two things. Either Nineveh took, it's a three days walk, so either it took three days to walk around the walls of the city, or it took three days to walk from point A 
all the way across the city. Does that make sense? Diameter for my geometry people, um, I think. So it took three days to walk from point A to point B across the city or all the way around. And that's important because here. And in verse 4, we're going to learn that Jonah is not only the worst prophet ever, he is the worst pastor ever. Look at verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. All right, that's his sermon. In forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Um, He basically goes to them and says, You guys are against God. You guys are going to hell whatever. And then he goes to the next house, and this is what he does. And, and should we talk about hell more? Yes. 100% we should. We do not talk about hell enough in the church in America. But here's what makes talking about hell so good. Because as scary and awful as hell is, that makes Jesus look that much better, right? That makes him look that much better. And so if you, but, it, but it makes him look that much better. And so if you just talk about hell, you've totally missed the point of why you should talk about hell because it makes Jesus look so good. So you have to put Jesus in there. And, the, and Jonah does none of that. There's no... Now, now, obviously, Jonah probably said more than this, but since this is all the Bible gives us that shows that the crux of his message, the whole point of his message was, you are going to hell. And that was it. There's no, mention, there's no mention of God, hello? There's no mention of his forgiveness. There's no mention of, hey, guess where I've been the last three days? In a fish. And in the fish, I was there because I was leaving, and I didn't want to come to you guys, but God changed the weather so that I could get to you. Look at how much he loves you. Please, will you follow him? I mean, the sermon will preach itself. All he has to do is tell what's happened to him, and there's none of that. Right? And there's the other thing. It says, how many, look at verse 4 again. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. Now, how many days walk is the city? Three. Three. And Jonah gets one. Now, here's what, we're, what we originally think. Here's Jonah being Jonah again. Only one day's walk. If you, that's a third of the way. If you had a test and you filled out a third of it and you gave it to your teacher, would your teacher be like, hey, oh, good, awesome. No. <laughs> It's terrible. It's terrible. There's Jonah being Jonah again. But listen to this other side. Listen to this other side. And I think this is correct. One commentary says, Jonah immediately begins his task when he arrives to Nineveh. And he only goes one day in and needs to go no further. Because his sermon has caused the people to repent and has spread through the city like wildfire so that no further preaching was needed. Jonah gets one day into the city he doesn't want to be in to preach a sermon he does not want to preach. And the gospel spreads like wildfire across this place. Um, my girlfriend takes a lot of notes and, and, and she doesn't like to put notes in her Bible so she fills out sticky notes and then puts the sticky notes in the Bible. And we were in Jonah in the college class three weeks ago, two weeks ago maybe, and, and she opened it to Jonah and I, and I saw on one of the sticky notes it said, um, the real miracle of Jonah is not the fish that swallows him. The miracle of Jonah is that an unwilling pastor went one day into this city 
There was a three days walk and the whole city still got saved. Guys, you think this is Jonah doing this? You think this is Jonah's work? And we'll talk about this um, in two weeks when we wrap this up, but the book of Jonah, you don't really figure out what happens to Jonah at the end. And people say, why? Well, because Jonah is not about that. Look at how God has taken the hearts of these people and used this, this awful sermon from this awful man and saved his people. Look at Jonah 3, verse 5, and then we'll close. Jonah 3, verse 5. And I will be there in just a second. Jonah 3, 5 says this. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Now skip down to verse 8. And the king said, But both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked ways. And then look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared upon them. So um, when I was younger, my granddad and I would build things. And when I say me and my granddad, I mean my granddad would build things. And, and he would build like 99% of this, and then he would let me put the last brick on or the last nail. I mean, I was so young. And, and he would sit back and he would watch the work be finished. And this is what God has done. It says when God saw what they had done, so God is sitting back. He has done the heavy lifting. He has gotten Jonah. He has changed the weather. He has used this game. He has used a fish. He has used this pastor who literally hates these people. And he has saved his city. And he takes the wrath that he was going to put on the city and he waves it away, just like he was planning to do from the beginning. God has a great love for his people for you, and he will do anything to get to you, and nothing can stop him. Let's pray.